Section 1 of Tin Horns and Calico by Henry Christman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 1 A Landed Aristocracy. Nowhere in the America of the late 1830s were the promises of the Declaration of Independence less fulfilled than in Albany, the capital of New York. Here was the seat of power of a landed aristocracy, the center of an island of semi-feudalism, in a land that had little more than half a century before declared its common faith in democracy and free enterprise. Under the patroon system, flourishing as vigorously as it had in the days of the early 17th century, a few families, intricately intermarried, controlled the destinies of 300,000 people, and ruled in almost kingly splendor over nearly two million acres of land. In Albany, class lines were sharp. Democracy was so little known that a veteran of the Revolution might be refused a seat on the Albany-Troy stage because he was shabbily dressed. Newspapers found it sufficiently important to report that cigar-smoking had lost its charm for the elite, since almost every shop-boy and dirty little urchin had taken it up. Society was geared to a round of pleasure matched only in Washington, and local politicians mapped the nation's political future over drinks at Eagle Tavern. Workers left stranded at the completion of the railroad in the Erie Canal, demoralized by the Panic of 1837, herded together in the poverty-ridden section on the city's edge, known as the Pasture, they had begun to talk of organizing against low wages, unemployment, and unstable purchasing power. Most of all, they were beginning to cry out for land, land through which to escape the vagaries of profits and wages. But almost no land within a radius of 150 miles of Albany could belong to the people. The Hudson Valley gentry had owned it for generations, their ownership guaranteed by a charter which was a direct denial of the people's constitutional rights. The situation in these unsettled times was beginning to draw questions. How long must this continue? Had it established a principle for the future in a nation rapidly expanding into the territories of the West? Some of the Hudson Valley gentry bore British names, Livingston, Morris, Jay, Others, descendants of Dutch settlers, were named Van Rensselaer, Hardenberg, Verplank, Van Cortland, and Schuyler. No other family was so proud or so influential as the Van Rensselaer family, pioneers in American feudalism, who for more than 200 years had been the owners of the largest estate in the region. Rensselaerwick embraced all of Albany and Rensselaer counties and part of Columbia, and by 1838 was maintaining between sixty and a hundred thousand tenant farmers. Their overlord was Stephen Van Rensselaer III, who had become the sixth lord of the manor at the age of five, and was now an urbane old gentleman in his seventies, a former soldier and a former congressman, who rejoiced in the sobriquet of the good patroon, and was adored by his six sons, three daughters, and numerous grandchildren. The patroon system, which Stephen and his contemporaries inherited, had been engrafted on America by Killian Van Rensselaer in 1629, 
long after it had been discarded in Holland. An influential pearl and diamond merchant in the Dutch capital, Killian joined with other crafty businessmen to obtain a charter for the Dutch West India Company, ostensibly to colonize the New World. However, their true purpose was to wage privateer war against Spanish ships carrying gold and silver from Peru and Mexico, and to re-establish Dutch command of the sea without violating their country's treaty of friendship with Spain. Armed fleets set sail with orders and authority to conquer provinces and peoples and administer justice. Enormous riches returned to the company, and the prize of maritime supremacy kept the government complacent, until other interests, alarmed at the British challenge of Dutch claims in the New World, began to ask what had become of that projected colonization. Shrewdly, the directors explained that settlement of such a wild and uncivilized country called for more settlers than they could supply. Important inducements would have to be offered before the undertaking could succeed. It was relatively easy, therefore, for the directors to get authority to offer a grant of land, with absolute power as patroon, to any member of the company who would plant a colony of fifty persons in America within four years. The patroon would have baronial authority with full property rights and complete civil and military control over the people, who would be bound by contract to fealty and military service as vassals. Each tract was to be legally purchased from the Indians and limited to a river frontage of sixteen miles, or, if the land lay on both sides of a river, eight miles on each bank. But enterprising Killian made his own laws. He had his agents give a basket of trinkets to the Indian chiefs for a title to land stretching twenty-four miles along the Hudson River, with Fort Orange, a fur-trading settlement, as the approximate geographical center. Of six patroonships granted, his was the only one to survive the first six years, for although he never crossed the ocean to his dominions, he was as fortunate in choosing his deputies as he had been in selecting his location. Tenants, imported to secure his title, were under absolute control of his agents. They were compelled to buy all their supplies from the patroon's commissary at usurious prices, grind their grain at the patroon's mill, and pay over to him part of all crops and increase in livestock— Hobbled by such restraints, agricultural settlers were few, but the traffic in beaver skins flourished. The Van Rensselaer Empire stood at the gateway to the fur trade of the inland wilderness, and although the grant of patroonship specifically reserved this trade to the company, Killian had a fort built on Barren Island at the southern end of his domain, and decreed that no ships should pass except those in his personal service when the company protested that trade rights belonged equally to all members, Killian declared he would enforce his edict by weapon right, and from the watchmaster of Barren Island all ships got orders to strike thy colors for the Lord Killian and the staple right of Rensselaerwick. Peter Stuyvesant, the hot-tempered, peg-legged director-general in New Amsterdam, took passage upriver to have it out with Van Rensselaer's agent at Fort Orange. 
When the boat docked, he stumped up the hill to the agent's house and ordered the soldiers to tear down the patroon's flag. That done, he laid out a town adjacent to Fort Orange, named it Beaverwick, and proclaimed it company property, under the jurisdiction of three magistrates whom he himself appointed. Beyond that, the patroon's influence with the home government proved too strong even for the hot-headed governor. As the land was cleared and farms became productive, the tribute paid by Killian's slowly growing nucleus of settlers added measurably to his fortune. I would not like to have my people get too wise and figure out their master's profit, especially in matters in which they themselves are somewhat interested, he wrote in 1629 to William Kieft, director of New Netherland. After the British seized New Netherland in 1664, the changes were largely superficial. Fort Orange and Beaverwick were combined under the name of Albany, from the Scottish title of the Duke of York, afterward James II of England. Killian's grandson, then in actual residence, was confirmed in his possession of Rensselaerwick by provisional orders. In 1685, the governor granted a patent transforming the patroonship into an English manor and the patroon into the lord of the manor. His civil rights were restricted a bit, but there was no change in the relations between landlord and tenant. The English almost outdid their predecessors in saddling the valley with big estates, for in addition to the nine actual manors, they handed out millions of acres in patents to lesser members of the Hudson River aristocracy. It was regarded as good policy to place large tracts in the hands of gentlemen of weight and consideration, who would naturally farm out their lands to tenants, a method which would create subordination, and, as the last of the colonial governors expressed it, counterpoise in some measure the general leveling spirit that so prevails in some of His Majesty's governments. Even the Revolution did not weaken the feudal hold of the big landowners. It merely stripped them of baronial honors and privileges. The rent-distressed tenants of New York State gave themselves and their supplies to the struggle, they fought at Saratoga, Oriskany, and Valley Forge for the right to be independent landholders. Side by side with men seeking freedom for capital enterprise to exploit the wealth of the new world, farmers and wage earners fought for the principles of individual political and economic freedom. With a common rallying cry, two wars were fought, one within the other, and one was lost. The farmers and the wage earners found themselves betrayed in victory when the new government became a bulwark for the rich and the middle class against the despised proletariat and the rising tide of democracy. Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, and the Livingstons worked unceasingly to keep New York the most conservative commonwealth in the new union. In 1777, the people of the state guaranteed that nothing in the state constitution should be construed to affect any of the grants made by the authority of the king or his predecessors. Two years later, however, under Governor George Clinton, the estates of Tories who had been loyal to the crown during the revolution were confiscated. In 1780, these and the lands acquired from foreclosures, tax sales, and Indian purchases 
were promised as bounty for revolutionary services, but the land office was not created until four years later. By that time, the choicest tracts had all been taken by prominent Federalists to satisfy their war claims, and great blocks had been sold to speculators and corporations for a pittance. Wherever impoverished veterans turned, they found the speculators had been there first. The tenant system spread, in flagrant disregard of the broader economic interests of the state. Highly skilled settlers, fleeing old-world oppression and class distinctions, avoided New York, rejecting its terms of perpetual tribute for the use of the soil and water power. Still, the great landowners would offer only leases. Thus it was that when Stephen Van Rensselaer III came of age on November 1, 1785, Rensselaer Wick was as extensive as it had been at the death of Killian in 1645, and had grown vastly in wealth and influence. Hudson River Society felt that young Stephen had every quality necessary to a leader of a landed aristocracy. He had been educated by his grandfather, Philip Livingston, one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. His wife was the lovely Margaret Schuyler, with whom he had eloped at the age of eighteen. In beauty and elegance she was second to no young woman in the region, except her sister Elizabeth, who had married Alexander Hamilton. Not since the hamilton Schuyler wedding had Albany known a beef-and-liquor dinner such as was spread for Stephen's coming to power. The flower of society was there, but the social sensation was overshadowed by the young patroon's revelation of his business plans, plans which betrayed the skillful guiding mind of Hamilton. The great manor had always returned income enough to support its lords in luxury, but the farms were few. Only scattered settlers had gone beyond the fertile valley lands to clear the heights of the Helderbergs, where thousands of untouched acres still awaited the axe and the plough. East of the Hudson, thousands more stretched across the rolling hills. Stephen now announced a liberal program to people the rest of his 700,000 acres. He would give the patriots of the Revolution homesteads without cost. Only after the farms became productive would he ask any compensation. Surveyors were sent over the hills. Farms of 120 acres each were blocked out. Exaggerated reports were issued about the fertility of the soil, the salubrity of the climate. Men began to come. And to each the patroon said, Go and find you a situation. You may occupy it for seven years free. Then come in at the office, and I will give you a durable lease with a moderate wheat rent. Before long, nearly three thousand farms were taken, and villages sprang up around church spires. Seven years went by, and the tenants came in for their durable leases. By this time, protected by the new federal constitution, which he had helped to frame, Alexander Hamilton had perfected for his brother-in-law a lease that would bind the new tenants permanently to the estate. In effect, its terms did not differ radically from those offered by the first patroon to his original settlers. By calling the contract an incomplete sale, Stephen Van Rensselaer adroitly sidestepped the issue of feudalism, which had been outlawed in New York State in 1782 
by the abolition of entail and primogeniture. He sold the property to the farmer and his heirs and assigns forever on the following conditions. As purchase price for the title to and the use of the soil, the tenant was to pay ten to fourteen bushels of winter wheat annually and four fat fowls, and he was to give one day's service each year with team and wagon. He was to pay all taxes, and was to use the land for agricultural purposes only. The patroon specifically reserved to himself all wood, mineral, and water rights, and the right of re-entry to exploit these resources. The tenant could not sell the property, but only his contract of incomplete sale with its terms unaltered, a quarter-sale clause restricted him still further. If he wished to sell, the landlord had the option of collecting one-fourth of the sale price or recovering full title to the property at three-quarters of the market price. Thus the landlord kept for himself all the advantages of land ownership, while saddling the tenant with all the obligations, such as taxes and road-building, this contract was an expression of Hamilton's theory of government. He proposed to save the nation from democracy by putting the rich and well-born in a position to check the unsteadiness and imprudence of the common people. America should be a nation of landed gentry, rich merchants, and professional men, with a strong coercive government to serve business and capital by guarding against the ambitions of laborer and farmer. He would preserve the old class distinctions by preserving the institutions which made them possible. For his brother-in-law, the patroon, he accomplished this objective. Too late, the settlers realized that the terms of the durable lease should have been agreed upon in writing when they took possession of the land. One farmer described his experience. I was poor. I found a lot that suited me and went to work cleared me a spot for a log cabin and a barn. At the end of seven years, a large portion of the forest had disappeared. Myself, wife, and little ones had just commenced to enjoy the fruits of our labor. I called at the office for my lease. It was handed to me. I told them I could not read it and requested that it should be read to me, which was complied with. I frankly told them that the lease did not agree with our verbal contract. It's the only lease given by Mr. Van Rensselaer, the agent said. What does quarter sale mean, the settler asked. You Dutchmen will never want to sell, and if you should, the patroon would never exact it. Mr. Van Rensselaer does not want the Yankees to get among you, for if they do, they will make trouble. It is put in there to keep them out. The agent further assured him that the day's service would never be exacted, except in the case of building a mill in that neighborhood, then the patroon would call on the tenant and his neighbors for a few days' teaming. If the day's service is only to be performed in the case of building a mill in my neighborhood, why not insert it so, the settler suggested? That is not in accordance with our agreement, and I shall not take it. You must take it or leave the premises. Thus the settler's story concludes bitterly, I was compelled to take the lease. The first seven years were cruelly hard for most of the men who took up homesteads in Rensselaerwick. A few found good soil, but more did not. 
Some traveled as much as ten miles to labor for half a bushel of corn a day, carried it home on their backs, and then took their axes out into the forest to clear the land with nothing but cornbread to eat. In this way they were able to get together a few tools with which to begin farming. Yet Stephen Van Rensselaer expected them to accept his terms without question. Others received a worse fleecing as a reward for superior enterprise and equipment. The following passage is quoted from a speech before the state legislature. I have in mind an instance where a man erected a mill costing some three or four thousand dollars, built two dams, dug a canal a quarter of a mile in length in order to lead the water to a spot where nature designed the erection of the mill, and for this privilege he was obliged to pay seventy dollars a year to Mr. Van Rensselaer, while Mr. Van Rensselaer didn't pay a cent of tax. In my native town I know of an instance where a man erected a fulling and carding mill at much expense, and who, when the terms of his lease expired, was threatened the moment he put water to his wheel to have a writ put on him, and finally they drove him off entirely, and he went to Schoharie, where he now resides. Any offer to buy the land outright was scorned, for no investment could be so secure for the landlord as this perpetual interest in the produce of his land. Only a few tenants had the courage and hardihood to refuse the leases, and turn to the wilderness to begin their toil anew. The rest remained in a serfdom which was, for all practical purposes, complete. For non-payment of rent, Stephen Van Rensselaer and his kind could issue their own warrants for the seizure and sale of crops and livestock to satisfy their claims, their own testimony being all the proof required. They could fix their own price, they could call upon the sheriff to collect for them, and the tenants had no appeal to the courts. The farmers worked, one sympathizer with the tenants said, so the landlord could swill his wine, loll on his cushions, fill his life with society, food, and culture, and ride his barouche and fine saddle horses along the beautiful river valley and up to the backdrop of mountain. It was small wonder, then, that the tenants' resentment grew, Glowing descriptions had led them to expect rich soil like that of the valley farms taken up long before the Revolution. Some settlers found small, loamy valleys east of the Hudson, but the majority were pushed up into the Petersburg Mountains, where the soil was hard and sterile, or even further into the wild, rocky, picturesque tableland of Taconic Mountains along the eastern border of the state. West of the Hudson, they found themselves established in the Helderbergs, the rock wall rising abruptly from the Hudson Valley, which once served as the great girdling shoreline for an ancient sea. Along the ridge, the receding glacier had left a deposit of boulders and rubble, over which the years had sifted a thin topsoil. Here the farmers spent their energy resting a living from the grudging land, and talked with patient humor of the stones that pushed up perennially as the only dependable crop. Some even fancied that the Helderbergs were the last place made by God, and the dumping ground for all the rock left over from creation. A missionary making a tour of the Mohawk and Black River valleys in 1802 wrote, The American can never flourish on leased lands. They have too much enterprise to work for others or remain tenants, 
and where they are under the necessity of living on such lands, I find they are greatly depressed in mind and are losing their animation. While Van Rensselaer's incomplete sale was yielding millions, he was energetic in guarding his interests on the political front. Like others of his class, he was a Federalist, and in the legislature at Albany and the House of Representatives in Washington, he struggled to resist the tide of Jeffersonian democracy. In 1805, he helped to enact state legislation permitting the imposition of rents as a condition in a contract of sale, a practice he had put into effect in Rensselaerwick nearly 20 years earlier. During the State Constitutional Convention of 1821, he revealed his fear of unrestricted suffrage in his vigorous but unsuccessful fight against the relaxation of property qualifications for voting in state senatorial elections. As another of the conservative leaders put it, I wish those who have an interest in the soil to retain the exclusive possession of a branch of the legislature. The men of no property, together with the crowds of dependents connected with great manufacturing and commercial establishments, and the motley and undefinable population of crowded ports, may perhaps at some future date, under skillful management, predominate. And yet we should be perfectly safe if no laws could pass without the free consent of the owners of the soil. Chancellor James Kent, jurist and conservative whip in New York State politics. Three years later, when the patroon was a member of Congress, his fear of losing his empire tricked him into casting the vote that made John Quincy Adams president. Adams, Andrew Jackson, and William Crawford were locked in a three-way stalemate, which had to be broken by the vote of the House of Representatives. Van Rensselaer had promised Martin Van Buren, the young New York senator with whom he occupied a house in Washington, that he would vote for Crawford, who was neither a dangerous Jeffersonian Democrat like Jackson nor a Yankee like Adams. At the last minute, Henry Clay and Daniel Webster called Van Rensselaer into the Speaker's office to see if he could not be scared out of his position. They told him that a continued deadlock might result in complete disorganization of the government, and anarchy was sure to threaten his manner. Their proverbial eloquence impressed the patroon, he returned to his seat on the floor, and, as always before making an important decision, bowed his head on the edge of his desk and prayed. When he opened his eyes, an Adam's ballot lay on the floor before him. It was divine guidance enough, and the patroon gathered up the ballot. His vote swung the state of New York, and Adams was elected president. Stephen Van Rensselaer was too realistic not to know that the semi-feudal power of the Hudson Valley aristocracy was an anachronism, and that a single act of provocation might crystallize democratic opposition. Knowing the history of his title, he was constantly harried by doubts of its legality. He betrayed this weakness on one occasion after he had announced that he was going to dispense with the services of a prominent Albany lawyer to whom he had been paying a thousand dollars a year. Very well, said the lawyer, then I shall be at liberty to accept a retainer from your tenants, and I will then show you that they are no longer your tenants, but owners of the soil. The payments to the lawyer were continued, it is said, to the end of the lawyer's life. Another incident revealed the patroon's dread of a court test. 
one of his sub-agents brought a man named Potter Maxson before a justice at Grafton on charges of poaching timber from the manor. When Maxson demanded proof that Van Rensselaer owned the timber, the case was transferred to the Rensselaer County Court. The patroon sped Robert Dunbar to Grafton to settle the case out of court. But Maxson, backed by neighbors who were anxious for the test, would not be pacified. Greatly agitated, Dunbar took out his anger on the sub-agent, whom he found in the backyard of his home. Who, in hell and damnation, authorized you to carry that suit to a county court, he demanded. Nobody, answered the astonished sub-agent. But there are so many in the practice of trespassing on the patroon that I thought it necessary to make an example of one. I had no doubt of the goodness of Mr. Van Rensselaer's title. Who made you the judge of the patroon's title? Dunbar stormed. What do you know about titles? You are a damned ungrateful wretch. Mr. Van Rensselaer has sustained you for forty years, and all you ever had come through his means. And now, by this one act, you have ruined him. But ruin did not follow. The case was decided in favor of Van Rensselaer, a decision made suspect by the patroons paying all the legal fees, despite Maxson's protests. Van Rensselaer continued to avoid forcing the issue whenever he could, thereby earning the name of Good Patroon. In hard times he let the rents accumulate, even when the Depression of 1837 pinched him so critically that he complained to Van Buren, then President of the United States, the good patroon could not be persuaded to press the tenants for back rent. As 1838 was drawing to a close, farmers in a dozen New York counties hitched up their teams and set out for the landlord's office. Rent day was on a Tuesday, the 1st of January, and many had to travel more than a day over frozen roads to get there in time. A few brought loads of produce to leave at the landlord's warehouses, but most of the farmers had their receipts for wheat and the four fat hens, which had been previously delivered to the patroon's mills, the local stores, or specified shipping points nearer to home. Stephen Van Rensselaer's agents received the tenants at the office connected with the manor house on the northern edge of Albany. Every farmer in Rensselaerwick was supposed to be represented there on rent day, whether he could make payment or not. The fertile valley farms, which had been under cultivation for several generations and had more favorable leases than the rest, were seldom in arrears, but the best that the upland farmers could do was make current payments in the good years, if they reported at all. All day long, that cold New Year's Day, 1839, tenants stood in the yard outside the office, waiting for their names to be called, in an endless monotone that could hardly be heard over the whinnying and stamping of tired horses. The thick, clotted wall, with its single window resembling a porthole, looked more like an old prison house than a place of business. As the farmers handed in their rates through the window and got their rent receipts and their orders regarding the day's labor with their team, they felt more like prisoners receiving their rations than the respectable citizens they were. One lad of seventeen, substituting for his father that day, wrote afterward, 
I have been in several different courts where criminals have been arraigned before the bar of justice, and that too for crimes of highest offense, where they had more liberty and more privilege allowed them than the honest and hard-working yeomanry had in that office. No farmer was permitted to enter the warm office to examine the books for himself, but each was obliged to take the agent's word that the entries were correct. As they walked away from the window, however, more than one tenant must have felt relieved that another rent day had come and gone without any reference to the unpaid back rents. Although none of them could have been aware of it, events were to make this rent day highly significant. In the first place, at the other end of town, a new governor was taking office. Political attention, long focused on the marble palace of the Democrats, had shifted to a yellow-brick mansion at Westerlow and Broad Streets, where New York's first Whig governor, William H. Seward, had just taken up residence. Even now the young governor was preparing his message to the legislature, which would make it clear that he had no use for the social philosophy that tolerated a landed aristocracy, and that he regarded American democracy as a force to remake the world. In the second place, it was the last time any of the farmers would pay rent to the good patroon. Death came to Stephen Van Rensselaer at the manor house on January 26, 1839, when he was seventy-three years old. The last Van Rensselaer who could legally use the title of patroon or lord of the manor was gone. With him ended an era for his passing was to affect not only his own tenants, but eventually the tenants of every estate in New York. Stephen Van Rensselaer belonged to a dying social order, but he was able to live out his life an exponent of the aristocratic tradition that men of wealth were preordained and exclusively competent to be leaders in government, public service, and cultural development. His admirers had ample reason for calling him the good patroon. Nevertheless, he should be judged not only by his acts, but by his motives. Under a modest and benevolent exterior, he had been the uncompromising guardian of his vested rights. He had contributed to the relief of the poor. People overlooked the poverty of his own tenants. He had let nearly half a million dollars in rent go uncollected for years, Signs of unrest had died down among his tenants. He helped build churches on his manor and contributed to their support. The church became a vigorous defender of his privilege, even after his death. He gave money and time to foster agricultural science. The application of new methods increased the productivity of his farms. He campaigned vigorously for the Erie Canal as a public improvement, the project enhanced the value of his manor at the gateway of river and canal. He gave money and personal effort to the advancement of education and culture, including the establishment of Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute at Troy in 1824. People disregarded the ignorance generated by the demoralizing leasehold system. The good patroon could well afford philanthropy, his rule over Rensselaerwick had paid him an estimated $41 million. With Hamilton's aid, he had extended his holdings to include extensive tracts in northern New York and considerable real estate in New York City. 
he was counted by many as the richest man in America. News of the great man's death traveled swiftly from the big house, and statesmen, editors, and clergymen vied in their eulogies. The good patroon had none of the morbid appetite for wealth which grows ravenous by what it feeds on. Daniel Dewey Barnard, one of the executors of his will, said that his heart reached forward well into the heart of the Republican system. Thurlow Weed, Whig leader and editor of the Albany Evening Journal, recalled the bounties and blessings Stephen had scattered, and the happiness and gratitude his lifelong goodness created. President Van Buren said that he had grown to love the good patroon as a father. In New York City, Philip Hone jotted a note in his diary, Few men were more extensively beloved, one of the Lord's noblemen, his ability to do good, which from his great wealth was more enlarged than that of most men, was never sparingly exerted for the good of his fellow citizens. The tenants of Rensselaerwick waited. His last will and testament would show the extent of the good patroon's humanity. End of section one. Recording by Maria Casper.